0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Hey, you guys. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by the brand new Real Estates app. It's an app for your iPhone, your iPad, what have you. R-E-E-L Estates. Real Estates. It's only 99 cents. Here's what it is. It's an app that shows you where the houses and apartments of your favorite fictional characters in film and television are actually located in real life. You want to see the Brady Bunch house in Studio City? The Real Estates app will take you there. Or what about Jeff Lebowski's bungalow in Venice Beach? Done. Or how about Hannah Horvath's Brooklyn apartment in the hit television show Girls? The Real Estates app knows all. You've seen these places on the screen, but with the Real Estates app, you can see them in person. It's a great way to explore your city. Plan a trip or take out of towners on a unique tour with photos maps directions and a database of over 450 locations throughout the country real estates is easy to use and extremely entertaining better yet it spans decades of pop culture with tv shows ranging from the jeffersons to modern family and a whole host of films ranging from breakfast to tiffany's to ted with the click of a button you can see which real estates are near you for all you know you could be blocks away from Marty McFly's house or Elliot's house in E.T. Uh, did you know that Connor from Highlander lived on the same block as Derek Zoolander? Now you do. Real Estates, where your favorite characters live. For more information, go to real-estates.com. That's R-E-E-L hyphen estates.com. Or just get it at the App Store. It's available now for only 99 cents. This is an app you can apply it, go and get it. Oh, my God.
2: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
2: I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, did it Struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what
0: was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy
1: just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a podcast recording. This is not regulated by the FCC. Thanks for being here. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, I can hear a police helicopter in the distance. Can you hear that? Is it just me? Anyway, my guest today is Mark Leibovich. He's the chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. And the author of a book that has spent some time recently at number one on the New York Times nonfiction list. Uh, that book is called This Town, Two Parties and a Funeral Plus Plenty of Valet Parking in America's Gilded Capital. And of course, this ta- uh, the town in question would be Washington, D.C. It's possible that you've heard of this book. It's possible that you've read this book. And it's possible that you've seen Mark Leibovich... Uh, on your television screen recently, he's been on pretty much every major network uh, the Sunday political shows. Uh, he's done the daily show, and now he's here. He has officially reached the pinnacle of American media, and I'm happy to have him on the program before we get there. uh I want to cover some stuff. I've been hearing from a lot of listeners I've been getting emails regarding the last couple of episodes uh, and the last couple of monologues in particular. Uh, There are people out there who are not fond of Max Millwood's criticisms. Max Millwood being the show's most dedicated and vociferous critic who sends me uh, a detailed analysis of every single episode. So one listener named Ty writes, Dear Brad, I believe I speak for most of your audience when I say that no one cares about Max Millwood's opinion. I enjoy the loose structure of your show and think Max needs to get laid or something. Here's a thought. Invite Max on as a guest. So we can critique you in real time. Keep doing what you're doing. Tie. You know, actually what I've been thinking is that Max should start leaving me voicemail messages. Which you can do now. Over at the show's official website. Otherpeoplepod.com You just go there. You click on send voicemail on the right side of the page. It's very easy. So Max, if you're listening, there's your opportunity. Uh, another listener named William writes. Hey, Brad, fan of the show, please stop reading Max Millwood's emails and critiques. I can't take it anymore. I just started listening to episode 203 and had to skip your monologue, which I've never done before. I'm over Max. Don't know the guy, don't care about the guy. I find his critiques to be negative and snooty. I'm listening to you at work, Brad. Work is already negative. I don't need Max's negative on top of work's negative. I think I may dissolve into a pudding from all the negatives. I'm going to go back to episode 203 now, and hopefully you don't bring up Max's emails to Peter Orner. He's probably a nice man who doesn't deserve that. Sincerely, a fan of your podcast, not the Max Millwood podcast, William. And then finally, a guy named Aaron sent me a tweet that reads, the only thing wrong with, quote, your show's format is, is a small part of its audience. Hashtag fuck Max Millwood. Hashtag the petulant child. So it's worth noting that I did not hear from anyone who agrees with Max's criticisms. But in the same breath, I should say that it's not entirely likely that I would. I feel like a lot of the time when people agree with a critic, they don't necessarily let you know. They don't have the courage of their convictions in the way that maybe Max does and they kind of keep it close to the vest. Me being who I am temperamentally, uh, I'm imagining many thousands of listeners out there who privately agree with Max and are thrilled that he is skewering me uh, where he sees the need to do so. And I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't share my listeners blanket uh, antipathy for Max. I have a soft spot for him. As I keep saying, I appreciate the feedback uh, and I appreciate that people care about the show. And when you do what I do, it sort of comes with a territory. When you do anything where you're sharing content publicly, whether you're a a writer or a painter or you're doing a podcast, whatever it is, not everyone's going to love it. And some people are going to let you know about it. And that's part of the deal. So I also got several voicemails. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for doing that. You know, in these early days of uh, voicemail accessibility, I appreciate it, but I have to say, uh, most of the voicemails that I got were extremely boring. <laughs> I got a lot of messages from people saying, uh, in essence, that they liked the show, or else they were basically just saying hello, and and that's fine. I'm like you know, I'm grateful for it. I appreciate the kind words, and I appreciate the listenership. But I'm not going to share those kinds of messages on the air because it would bore everybody else. And it would it would just be an insufferable thing to do for me to share a bunch of, you know, a bunch of messages from people saying they like the show. I'm not going there. So, if, you know, if you want to get a voicemail on the air, you, you got to get creative. Tell me a story. Uh, you have 90 seconds on the voicemail system. It's a 90 second maximum. So, you, you know, work with a compressed time frame. Tell me what's going on in your life or uh, maybe uh, issue a complaint, go on a rant, ask me a question, whatever you want, but you know, make it uh, podcast friendly. Think of your audience. So here's uh, one message I got. I'll play just a couple of these. And uh, this one was sent to me uh, anonymously. So here we go.
2: There are two people you need to have on your show. And the first one is Rebecca Makai.
1: Okay, you know, I'm not going to do this. Uh, I just feel like if I do, then I'm going to get a flood of voicemails from people uh, telling me who I should have on the show. And 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 that could get tedious. And uh, it's not that I don't like to get recommendations either. It's just that, you know, for that kind of stuff, just tweet at me or email me. Like, obviously I can't accommodate everyone, but I do like the feedback. And the truth is that I, I often do respond to suggestions. That's happened many times. So I appreciate the message. I just don't want to get into doing that on the, on, the, on the air. So let me do one more, and then we'll get started with the main event. This is a uh, message from a listener named uh, Cynthia.
3: I'm a huge podcast listener in general. I run marathons, so I spend a lot of time on my feet with headphones. I discovered your podcast a couple months ago. I think I read about it on McSweeney's and became an instant fan. I'm not a writer, just a reader, although really more of a TV watcher and podcast junkie, as I already mentioned. I really enjoy your interviews, but my favorite part of your podcast is the monologue. I look forward to your opening segments all week.
1: So she's the one. God bless you, Cynthia. You know, I just assume that uh, most everybody's fast-forwarding through this. But apparently not.
3: I find almost all of your topics interesting and I'm especially impressed with how you have mastered the art of the pause.
1: That is my art, by the way. And uh, it would appear to be the only art that I've ever mastered.
3: I agree with your recent caller, Danny, that you have a very sexy voice. I okay. wasn't going to say anything so, since I assumed you uh, hear that all
1: thank the Thank you to Cynthia for the message and for the kind words uh, about my, my voice. And I, uh, I should add that Cynthia sent me a follow-up email that I do want to share with you because I find it compelling her follow-up email, which she sent as an addendum to this voice message. Uh, it reads, hi Brad. I recently went back and listened to some old podcasts from the archives. I want to give you a little insight on the three way, which is to say a menage a trois. And so here I should interject, uh, and interrupt this for a moment. Uh, I remember that I did do an episode not too long ago where I talked about the uh, potential awkwardness of a menage a trois. Uh, I've never been in one personally, but I think uh, if I recall correctly, I was on the air and I was imagining that it would be awkward, uh, potentially. And that one one person would be the best looking of the three, the most desirable, and it would then become, by virtue of human nature, some kind of uh, competition. And someone would inevitably wind up feeling left out. So Cynthia continues I want to give you a little insight on the menage a trois A lot of people get off on watching other people have sex So part of the thrill is When you're not actively engaged in the fucking, sucking, or kissing You get turned on by watching the other two I don't believe it is, as you said One person feeling left out And or two people competing for the attention of the hottest member Generally all three are pretty attracted to one another Or else they wouldn't be there You really should try it sometime, it's hot Keep up the great work. Bye for now, Cynthia. So uh, thank you, Cynthia, for clarifying that. Uh, what, you know what you say makes sense to me. It seems logical, but um, <laughs> I feel like I feel like uh, I feel like Cynthia's voice sounds really sweet. Uh, sort of has a, an apple pie effect. Do you know what I'm talking about? And yet, uh, she, she, here she is appearing to know uh, a lot about the intricacies and the psychodynamics of three ways, which I find, uh, amusing. I don't know. And you know, obviously people with wholesome sounding voices, they can do any number of things. And I don't mean to pigeonhole you, Cynthia. I'm just noting, uh, what, what seems to me, uh, to be a contradiction possibly, Anyway, uh, that's it for feedback. Thank you guys for the voicemails. Uh, remember, if you want to say something to me, you can record a message at otherpeoplepod.com. Just click on send voicemail over in the right sidebar. And remember, you can do it anonymously if you want.
0: Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow
1: My guest today is Mark Leibovich. Very happy to have him here. Uh, he has written about politics for the Washington Post and the New York Times, where he is now the chief national correspondent for the Times Magazine. His new book, This Town, is a number one New York Times bestseller and a scathing assessment of Washington, D.C. Here he is, folks. This is Mark Leibovich, and his new book, once again, is called This Town. <laughs>
2: I'm coming to you from the, um, the the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. I, I have a desk here. There's probably about 50 reporters in here, although many of them are now at lunch uh, or finishing up their summer vacations. Uh, it is the day of the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, so there is much commotion outside. And um, I'm sitting at my very cluttered desk. I have um, an empty Starbucks cup. I have... Um, the, a, the, the obligatory empty the obligatory yeah. <laughs> Starbucks cup or, or Starbucks cup. I have. Um, uh, let's see. I have a bag of uh, turkey jerky. Heppered. Uh, I have a Diet Coke. I have a uh, ha- half drunken, half half consumed, bottle of water. Um, and um, I have a uh, let's see, a, a Styrofoam bucket of faux. A chicken foe that I just bought at a food truck outside of our office. Um, my desk is rather cluttered, and um, so there. There's my surroundings. It, I have
1: it a, sounds like a, it sounds like a
2: reporter's desk. I mean, it I, is a reporter's desk. Yes, it is. It is quite very much a reporter's desk.
1: Okay, and so you're you're working for the New York Times, covering politics. You've worked for the Washington Post as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the what the Boston Phoenix before that. I, San I worked Jose for Times. the
2: I worked for the San Jose Mercury News That's in right. in California um, from ninety four to ninety seven. That was and then I left from there to go to the Post. And my first job was at the Boston Phoenix, <clears throat> which is a, a weekly alternative weekly newspaper, which um, just went out of business a few months ago, unfortunately. Right. Uh, but I started out answering phones there for a few years, and then eventually I was. So bad at uh, administrative work, they they let me be a reporter, and <laughs> I wrote uh, many very 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 long stories with very very long middles that I really don't think anyone read. But uh, yeah, that was my my first uh, writing job, and I sort of learned how to be indulged. And um, so yeah, that, that's my that's my resume right there.
1: Okay, and so and and are you from Boston originally?
2: I am. I grew up in uh, well the suburbs there of Newton, Massachusetts. It's uh, right outside, about fifteen minutes outside. It's a uh, I would say, you know, middle class, maybe upper middle class suburb, um, and I uh, went to the University of Michigan, and uh, yeah, go back to to Boston. Uh, every few months, my mother still lives in uh, the house I grew up in. So,
1: oh wow, okay. So, did you did you grow up with uh, journalist parents, writerly parents? Was this something that like this is an ambition that you nursed from a young
2: age, or is it something? No, no not really. I mean, I I, um, I was sort of a Uh, I guess what you would call them. I mean, I was certainly an underachiever in school. I mean, I didn't take. um, I wasn't a very good student. I probably had something um, that would have some diagnosable description today, um, whether it's ADD or uh, whatever the four-letter one is. I I, I, I wasn't. I wasn't terribly engaged in school. I was very. um, I was sort of um, focused on. I was sort of sports. I was kind of kind of a cut up. Um, I was probably, um, I just wasn't a very good student. So, um, but people around, I mean, it was a pretty high achieving area, especially as I got up to high school. I mean, everyone was, uh, very, very concerned about where they were going to college. Um, and I, I didn't, I mean, I was pretty good at writing. Um, it was actually the one thing I could do to, um, Kind of. I mean, it was actually the one thing I was fairly good at in school. And um, But no, I didn't think I was going to be a writer. I mean, I, I, I guess I liked reading a little bit, um, but not that much. And then when I got to college, uh, I was an English major. And then I just sort of, I guess I kind of caught the bug. I mean, I, I didn't even, I, I wasn't, there was no moment in college, I didn't work for the college newspaper or anything, where I just sort of thought, all right, this is for me. Um, I you know, I read the Boston Globe a lot growing up, but mostly the sports page, which was which was always compelling but no they, I think my um I really sort of developed a love of this kind of just later um, I, I mean almost by doing it first uh, first yeah I guess mostly at the at the phoenix but um but no it was I was postponing adulthood i you know they had a job and there I was and I guess the osmosis factor of the newsroom um, kind of uh, got to me and and that's where I wound up.
1: Well, and I, but I feel like, you know, in some ways it's I mean, yeah, there's the accidental element of it, but uh temperamentally, do you think that you're uh because you I th- I'm thinking of in particular the uh the fact that you profile a lot of people, a lot of people mm-hmm. who are notable or, you know, well-known. Right. And you know, I think there's a certain temperament that suits itself well to that work because mm-hmm. um you know you have a way of getting stuff out of people and finding the right. story and i think that um i'm thinking of joan didion too stuff that she wrote about doing that kind of work where she has like kind of the ability to blend or i mean mm-hmm. how do you, how do you feel about your particular like personality makeup as it pertains to the work that you
2: do yeah no i mean it does seem to work i guess for me i mean i, I certainly i mean joan didion is is one of, one of my idols um you know i've read a lot of her and and you know certainly her political work which I think is might be less appreciated was a terrific um uh inspiration for me just as I was doing this book but but um I do think that I um I at first, I I mean I I do think I mean being able to I mean not really get along with people because it's not really the, the art. But I mean, I, I do like experiencing the world as a journalist. I don't like politics per se. I love politics and just sort of watching it. I'm, I'm also um, I'm, I mean, for some reason, I, I still am compelled by it, even as I'm appalled by it. But I just think that the language of politics is such that I really want to be outside of it and I want to be in a more critical place. But I, I do think that um, I like being in a public place, but I also like being in a private place where you can sort of hide behind a byline um, and, um, I, I guess there's part of me that probably loves the solitude of it. I mean, I, I think, I mean, hates the loneliness, but loves the solitude of, of the writer's life and the reporters kind of adventures.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's like the, it's the introversion of, of, I mean, would you call yourself
2: an introvert? Yeah, I probably would. Um, I don't think others would. Um, I think, but would I like, I probably like to be alone more than I like to be with pretty much everyone. Um,
1: well, but see, the thing is, though, is that I, like I used to have this idea of introversion as being like you know they just people who just like to be by themselves all the time. But yeah, I've mod mm-hmm. I've kind of modified my definition of it because I think I am one, and it's that mm-hmm. it's not that I don't like people or that I can't be good socially. It's just that it, mm-hmm. at the end of it all, I need to rest.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm totally with you. I mean, I, I think um, Tom Daschle, who was a you know senator here uh, for many years, House Majority or Senate Majority Leader, Democratic Leader. Um, he told me once that he I and mean, he was painfully shy growing up and and he said that the reason he got into politics is because he found that it, it, it forced him to sort of come out of himself and be someone that uh, be more someone that he wanted to be rather than the extremely painfully shy introverted figure who was just afraid to go to birthday parties as a kid and um i think that there is part of that um there's also i remember reading an interview with Quentin Tarantino uh, many years ago and and he uh talked about going to all these you know hollywood award um you know ceremonies and dinners and stuff and how what he would always do in the middle of these things was just go into the men's room stand in a stall and just do absolutely nothing except stand in the stall uh for you know a half hour because he just didn't want to be bothered he didn't want to talk to anyone he didn't want to look at anyone he didn't want anyone to know where he was and um, just be with himself. And I actually uh, completely identify with that and have even done that. Since uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it's just, it's just a great, uh, I, I don't know. I just, I love the image of just willfully um, being in, in a in, in confined space I and mean, hopefully it's a fairly clean restroom. But, um, <laughs> well, no, I, I, the,
1: I, I understand that. And I think that, you, you know, uh, at the same time or in the same breath, it should be said that like those kinds of events, where you have you know all of Hollywood in a room and everyone's mm. sort of there to be seen and everyone's checking everyone out and it's like this massive collision of egos, like right. not too dissimilar from what you're witnessing in Washington a lot well, of the time.
2: Exactly. I mean, I, I actually have partaken of just that activity. Um, I probably shouldn't be talking too much about this, but uh, what the hell? I mean, no. I mean, I, I have definitely done this at like the White House Correspondents' Dinner back when the Times used to. Um, say we could go, um, or various parties. I mean it's it's just a very exhausting, exhausting place to be in public, whether you're working or not. Um just and I, I think look there's a there's definitely a Hollywood Washington analogy and um in the public relations and, and the persona is extremely um important and, and, and it's just everyone's working really hard. I just don't think people realize how hard they're working and I, I always do and that's one of the reasons I, I willfully take a break.
1: <laughs> well, and and how many years have you covered politics, or how many
2: years did you cover politics
1: prior to writing this town?
2: Um, I covered I've covered politics since two thousand and two. I, I, my first political writing job was for the Washington Post Style section. I, I worked for the Post Business section for the first, um, I guess, my first four or five years there, um, and that I was a technology reporter, and I, I figured I, I, I wrote a. Collection of profiles on technology billionaire pioneer types like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, and that was my only other book. It, it, ran, it uh, was published in two thousand and two, and then I sort of jumped off from there and um, went into politics. So I, I guess I've been covering this for about eleven years.
1: Okay, so you did, you logged like a full decade covering this world, and now you've published this book. And uh, right. words that co- you know I've seen commonly used to describe it are like acid. <laughs> uh, you know that, like people are talking about having to take a shower every five
2: pages. Yeah, and, I like that. I, I can I can live with that.
1: Yeah, and so there's a. I want to ask you because I'm reading it and I'm eating it up. I'm like I'm a total political mm. junkie, and uh, you know I think we were emailing. I was telling you how big of a fan I am of Gore Vidal, mm, uh, yeah, who, I, who I think yeah, I mean who's just like a, a hero to me, and who I think uh, this book I, like I feel like this book was written in the spirit of Howard Beale, the character mm-hmm. from Network, and mm-hmm. Gore, mm-hmm. Gore Vidal. Who uh, had a similar acidic sense of humor and willingness to uh, write what he saw in a way that I think a lot of people in the Washington media uh, don't, or that's that's what I suspect anyway, and I increasingly suspect that uh, not only of print journalists, uh, but even to a greater extent of the of the television punditocracy, Mm -hmm. where you feel you can just sort of feel that chumminess, you know, even on the on the set of these like Sunday shows, you're like. You know what? These people are asking "quote unquote" tough questions, and then they're immediately going to a barbecue together. <laughs> it's right? Like,
2: you know? Right, right. But you can also, and when you're actually there, you can feel the revulsion. I mean, I think what's been interesting about the response to this book is, is uh, I, I mean, there have been a few "How dare he's right." I mean, "How dare he? How he dare? How dare one insider speak like this about other insiders?" But I do think that there has been a grudging, um, and, and maybe this is just because the book has done well, but I think there's been a grudging. Um, not so much respect, but I mean, I so said, "Boy, I wish I had written that because I wish you would talk to me." I mean, because I, I think I have channeled a fairly common experience of revulsion here, and I, and I think look, Washington doesn't really self well, self loathe properly. <laughs> doesn't even know how to self loathe properly. I mean, it, it, it sort of it relies on things like House of Cards and Veep and um, you, know, you know, basically fictional narratives to to kind of enjoy or to see the definition of, of what is, has come to hate. But um, now, I mean, I've been, I, I do, look, I, I think that that's a very important role of a journalist, but it's also the kind of journalist I want to be, especially now, because I, I think that um, a lot of this book obviously does come from a place of, of revulsion. I think part of it also comes from a place of idealism um, because, look, I mean, it, it's, I think, you know, just dis- the other side of disgust is expectation, right? And, um, I obviously am still interested in this world, and I want better from it. So, I mean, maybe that explains why I'm still here and still doing this.
1: Right. Well, I mean, and so when – just, like, talk about the – I don't know. I guess your your emotional state leading up to the decision to write this book. I mean, was this something that you'd been – like an idea that you had been nursing, like, for years, where you're like, one day I'm going to write
2: the truth about this place? <laughs> or- yeah, I mean – yeah, I mean, not really. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people have been threatening to write the truth about this place for a long time. Um, and I think a lot of people try. I mean, look, there's there's no shortage of memoirs. Um, I mean, in the, I mean one of the more useless genres of the political book is, is just the memoir, because almost none of them are honest, because most of them are written either mid-career or even end-of-career, in which people are just trying to be nice to everyone and just give shout-outs. I mean, that's sort of how politics works. Um No, I knew we had something here. I just didn't know what the vehicle was, and I I struggled. I mean, I struggled. I mean, I didn't actually sit down and write a proposal for this. I mean, this kind of came about um, from a magazine story I did in 2010 on Mike Allen. It was a profile of uh, this very powerful, very kind of quirky... um, uh, At at Politico. At Politico, yeah, reporter for Politico who sends out this daily tip sheet and... Um, that everyone reads called Playbook, but and uh, that that magazine piece you know got a lot of attention, and and from there it sort of, I mean I I met this brilliant publisher uh, then publisher of Simon Schuster uh, David Rosenthal, who just sort of read this. He's been re- he'd been reading my stuff for a long time in the Post, and he said you know why don't you just like ju- do something and jump off from there? And um, unfortunately, so David was fired um, about a month or so after. I signed a deal with them and, um, you know, and then, then I sort of was casting about in the wilderness and thinking, okay, where's my narrative? And David eventually landed at blue rider press, which is his own imprint, um, inside of penguin. And, uh, when he became, you know, when he started working again and I wasn't going anywhere with, uh, the people I was working with at Simon and Schuster, I, I got out of that deal and I went over to, um, to 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 Penguin and it was just great. I mean, David just really really encouraged me to kind of look beyond the conventions of, of the the kind of nonfiction uh, or, or or the kind of sort of political classic political nonfiction book, which is uh, either memoir or um, you know some sort of story of a campaign, story of a bill. Um, some kind of clean narrative or something. I mean, there was a lot of history and stuff. But, I mean, I, I just sort of wanted to... He, he just said, look, I mean, don't worry about the traditional narrative. I mean, just write about it over a five year period meaning Washington and, uh, just jump from there. And, and we had the Tim Russert funeral scene, which was the opening scene of the book, which is so
1: great. Uh, it was so great. And so it, revolting. <laughs>
2: it was, it was both of those things. Yeah, no, I mean, this was at the Kennedy center. Um, and it was just everyone sort of working it. It was just people throwing business cards around and, um, it was supposed to be a very sad occasion, but I mean, Tim Russert was sort of the mayor of uh, official Washington, but anyway, um, he so yeah so we, we kind of reunited and uh, the book flowed from there and it took three years and but no I don't think I really knew what I had until I had it.
1: Well the, well, the or, word that, the word that comes to mind uh, for me is diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like this is a clear diagnosis of so much of what's wrong with uh, Washington our political system. The media is it? The, do you call it the media industrial complex, or am I um, making that up?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think you do. I think they use it on like the book flap a lot. I, I don't know if I ever like actually use the term, but yeah, no, that 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 the media's role in this world is big.
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about this because I think this is this is part of the heart of the book. Is is the confluence of uh, big media, uh, Wall Street money, you know, the big money, and then mm-hmm. political power. And, you know, these things have have always had a relationship, but I think what your book says is that this relationship uh, is deeper and uh, more toxic than it's probably ever been. And I I would love to hear, you know, you kind of try to summarize what I I would call the diagnosis of this that we get in the book.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I I think diagnosis is is an interesting word, and I don't think... Uh, the, the one thing that people have constantly asked me about is what is my diagnosis, meaning what is my solution, right? I mean, people don't, people sort of conflate diagnosis with solution, right? Which is wrong. I mean, these are two separate things. And what a doctor will say if he's diagnosing your ailment is, you know, you have the flu or you have cancer. Now we'll think about what we're going to do about it, right? So my diagnosis doesn't really have a name, it just sort of has. A book, You know, I mean, you can sort of look, I mean, I'm very much in the, I, I try to be in the show, not tell school as far as what you're looking at. But I do think that obviously money is a part of this. I think decadence is a, is a big sort of recurring theme here, um, you know, new media and, and how it's just so easy now to, um, for everyone to either get rich or famous or or, or some next act or cash in somehow. Well, um, it's, it's it's this like
1: c- the this circular flow of money, and yeah. it's worth noting. You know, like here's a, here's a, a like a plain fact that says a lot is mm-hmm. that Washington D.C. is the wealthiest community in the United States. Yep, by far. And you know, there's the uh, you know the part of it where you're talking about the revolving door. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's obscene how many of yep. our re- you know elected representatives. Once they leave office, go out to become lobbyists and yep. are, are making like massive seven-figure incomes. It's like <laughs> – but what is it, like half of senators and yeah, 40 percent of
2: Yeah, 50 percent of all retiring or voted out senators become lobbyists and 42 um, percent of congressmen do, and that compares to 3 percent um, for both in 1974, so – yeah, no. I mean, no one no one leaves anymore, um, and and you do sort of wonder who are these people working for when they're actually in the office? Are they just sort of looking at their next gig? Uh, are they uh, you know serving the people that are electing them? I mean, look, it's it's a culture of self perpetuation and and one that's enabled by incredible amounts of money that are being spent here, and for whatever reason, incredible well, for obvious reasons, for incredible amounts of attention that is being um, paid here, which, which creates a great appetite for, for media attention for, um, you know, for people who purport to explain how this world works and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, I, again, so it, 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 I would say that the diagnosis is just whatever this carnival looks like, or is as laid out over a five year period. And in, in my case, 370 pages, but it moves fast.
1: Yeah, it does. <laughs> I, I tore right through it, and um, I, I was reading something that you said, and I, I forgive me if I don't remember the exact place. It was either in an interview as I was, uh, you know, reading about the book, or it was in the book itself. But uh, the system rewards cowardice. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah, our political system and how it rewards cowardice, and then um, you know how you know the people who have financial interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people who are making money off of this system have a vested interest in seeing things not get done. <laughs> exactly. Uh,
2: right.
1: Explain that a little
2: bit. Well, essentially, I, I mean, to the Washington economy is built on gridlock, on combat, on uh, undermining what the other side is doing. So if things just sort of get caught up in this virtual, perpetual state of, failure, meaning bills not getting passed, regulations not getting written, um, you know, amendments not getting filed or through, uh, the lobbyists are going to keep getting paid. I mean, if if an immigration bill passes tomorrow, uh, that's tens of billions of unrealized lobbying fees, consulting fees, uh, cable shouting matches, um, you know, the kinds of things that grease this machine. So... Um yeah, I mean it, it's in pretty much everyone's best interest to let the fight move on, right? And um you know, so and it and it's in, you know, if you're a member of Congress, it's it you're you're very much expected and, and certainly probably could benefit from going with the herd, um, you know, whatever your leadership says, whatever your party says, because that's gonna help you raise money. It's gonna help you, you know, get a better seat on a, a better committee and, and what have you. So yeah, no, I mean, any kind of independence has been very much um, uh, kind of washed out of the system. Independence is not defined by self-service and, and cashing in, right? And that's sort of become the new ethic here. I mean, you, this is a city that was built on public service, and it's now very much been given over to, to self-service.
1: Is there anybody – I mean, are, are there – there? I know, obviously, there are staffers and whatnot, but there are are, are there elected officials who cut against this grain – like are, yeah. there, are there any Mr. Smiths out there that you've come across where you're like okay, or Mrs. Smiths? You know, are there yeah. pe- are there people in Washington who you look to with like real genuine admiration? Or are they all just
2: no? Law- I do actually. No, I, I do. I mean, look, I think a lot of people really try their best. I mean, like I mean, there's a chapter in here that sort of is it like a two headed profile of um, of uh, Tom Coburn, is a very conservative senator from Oklahoma, and Harry Reid, who's the Democratic leader of the Senate, um, diametrically opposed in in pretty much every way institutionally, politically, and they despise each other. Um, and yet they both, I think, know who they are. I think they're both fairly, I mean, both fascinating and, and also pretty secure psychological characters, which is not the most, um, not, not the most common thing around here. And they, um, I don't know, I don't know if I call them Mr. Smith types at all, but I mean, I, I think there are people, I just think that the system absorbs them and they just get sucked up like you know, like, like nutrients into barnacles or something. Uh, or, or, they can't, know,
1: so. they can't keep their office unless they're fundraising five days a week. Or, That's you exactly know. right. There's, yeah, no, I mean,
2: be. part of self-perpetuation.
1: Ugh. So, um, do you have, I guess you were talking about diagnosis and not cure. Like, it's so hard to right. think of what the cure would be.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, a lot of people have asked me that. I mean, I, I, you know, the book does not have a, uh, A a ten bullet point chapter in which I say we need campaign finance reform, we need a third party candidate, we need um, what else do we need? I mean, just we we need uh, term limits. I mean, I I just don't have the prescriptions. I'm just not that smart to know of them. But I, I just don't. I mean, I'm I'm hoping you know maybe it'll stimulate some kind of frustration or shame or whatever. But I mean, that's not. I mean, I really don't have a lot of control over that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think maybe the first step is just to to say what's happening and you've helped you've helped that cause. So
2: you can hope so. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's not nothing. I mean, look, that's sort of what a journalist does. Right. I mean, or, you know, put a shine a mirror on the on the um, uh, on the culture.
1: Right. And so uh, President Obama uh, does not figure hugely into the book. Right. Uh, I mean, there's some mention, but, you know, he's largely peripheral in the story that you tell and you know i'm interested in uh, your thoughts on him because uh, particularly because he came into office with like this such a w- on such a wave of idealism um and you know <laughs> you come right. to washington with a lot of idealism a lot of a lot of that is sure to be absorbed just like you were talking about right uh, you know do, do you have a sense of him do you have a, like do you get a word in town from journalist friends like
2: yeah. Has he been been corrupted? I don't don't know. I don't think he... I mean, I think the presidency is is just such an isolated and scrutinized and basically inhuman job. I mean, not one I could begin to access. I mean, for beginners, I mean, I don't talk to him. I mean, I've interviewed him a few times, I mean, just over the years, but it's not... I have no you know, real value added, um, insights into him that, that anyone else doesn't. But I do think that I, I would like to think that he continues to be disgusted. I think though, that his job is such that he has to, if not rise above it, certainly sort of exist psychologically separate from it because otherwise I think it would drive him crazy. I mean, I think to be the president of the United States, you need to be so secure and, um, I and mean, I would love to I would love him to read the book i don't I have no idea if he has i I tend to doubt it um but i I would love to know what he thinks because I know you know a lot of people in the White House have had their back up around the book, but I think privately they've told me that that it's right and they wish that they that that things could be different and they did their best and um so i mean it it's just very um I do think that I almost give presidents a pass of either party, just because I I just feel so incapable of judging, you know, their character vis-a-vis this this incredible machine that they're sitting they're they're sitting at the top of.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's I, I was just reading uh, the Jody Cantor book huh? uh, about the Obamas and like getting like like I don't know I didn't have quite a, an understanding of just how. Boxed in they are in that house.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I don't see. I I mean I don't know. Yeah, I mean it, it's a really. I mean that's sort of what I liked about that book. It really it did give you the sense of the boxed inedness of the president. Now I mean, uh, I mean again I, I don't think you can fully appreciate that unless you're living it. But I think that 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 probably got closer than than um, than what I've seen. So I mean. I don't know though, man. I mean, it's really, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's a very, uh, it, it's a very, very, very seductive, um, I mean, look at House of Cards. I mean, it's both revolting and, and at least in my case, I couldn't stop watching
1: it. No, yeah. I got, I got, I got the flu earlier this summer and, yeah. uh, and thankfully had like the time to just lie in bed and watch like the first season. It was
2: fantastic. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. No, I mean, in this actually, in the spirit of meta, I'm actually, um, the Times, we have this thing called Timescast where the, the, um, we just sort of do live interviews before studio audiences. And we're doing the first ever Times cast tonight, um, from, without a studio audience, we're doing it from the set of House of Cards in Baltimore, in which I am, I'm interviewing, um, Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright, and then the writer, Bo Willimon. Um, so that'll be interesting. It'll be very meta.
1: Oh yeah, that sounds great. And wait, wait, do we you know when season two is happening? I can. Never... I, I think
2: what January twenty fourteen. I mean, I just sort of rewatched all the episodes just because I, you know, to prepare for tonight, and um, uh, it was great. I mean, I, I was actually kind of curious. I mean, I, I do. I'm curious to ask them what they think. How the relationship between um, you know actor and viewer is when the viewer has all the control over when he can watch, right? And and how all you 're just in this binge situation because it 's very hard to stop watching i mean whether you have the flu or not i mean I, I i i could have watched it you know I could have watched a whole other series this weekend but um anyway no it 's uh it 's very uh it 's very compelling so i mean I think that that you know that 's like endlessly i mean it 's good that i, I think i 'm writing about a world that even if people hate it are Is continues to be interesting and compelling, and and people feel passionate
1: about. It affects everybody's lives, you know, whether we like it or not. And you know, with regard to television and and a series like House of Cards, is that what strikes me about the binge watching thing and having control over Mm -hmm. when you watch it is that. It really does make television uh more the the television watching experience more similar to the reading experience It makes it more novelistic you know because you you can devour the you know if you get off on a tangent you can devour the full thing in a in a weekend you know right <laughs> uh, much like you do with a book that you can 't put down uh, as right. opposed to having to wait for you know. Weeks and weeks to get the the, the end. But, okay. Yeah, no, totally. I totally agree. So. Uh, and then the other thing that uh, we you alluded to earlier that you know you you kind of have to laugh is that you have these shows that really do skewer in a lot of ways the culture of Washington. And then you have like Kevin Spacey or whoever showing up at like the correspondence dinner or these I big know. events, and they're and they're celebrated, and everyone wants like, a, a picture. Yeah. So. I guess Washington does have, like, some kind of sense of humor about it. Well,
2: maybe, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I I think that, (laughs) I think it does have a sense of humor, although it's just, I mean, look, Washington is as much of a star fucker community as as any place is, right? And I think people here are endlessly flattered that that Hollywood is paying attention to them, that their world is being reflected, Um, and... So I mean, look it's it's very um, it, it's very um, it, it's I mean it's all very meta, but I, I just don't think people are, are capable very much of sort of stepping back and say, hey, wait, what am I doing here? I mean, it's all they're they're just all sort of in for the same thrill, and if meeting Kevin Spacey at the White House Correspondent <laughs> Center is part of it, why not, right? Right. Let's, so, yeah. Let's
1: get a picture. Um, and so what about how people have treated you since, I mean, you, you've talked a little bit about this, but I I mean, you have to get this question all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. has anyone been really nasty? Has anyone, uh, you've been out to a restaurant and like somebody in town sees you and gives you a dirty look or worse. Like has any, what's, what's happened?
2: Not a lot of that. I mean, I, I expected a lot worse. Um, I mean, look, I, I was a nervous wreck for, um, for a long time over this book because it was it was a way to, at least in DC, it took a long time. It was a hard book to write. I mean, it, I, I had fun with it in places, but it's, you know, it's, it's this is a lot. It's just, I mean, my, I'm just, I don't have that kind of bandwidth. I mean, I'm, I have a newspaper length story or magazine length story bandwidth in which I can keep X number of words in your head. And then when you have 110,000 words in your head, it's just a lot of stuff to keep straight. Um, and then, then you have to worry about being right. And, you know, you're going to be scrutinized. So I, I, and, and the fact checking process, with you know, in which I kind of went back to a lot of the major characters and had some rather difficult conversations.
1: Oh, um, yeah, like with, what? what is that? Because I know like books like this tend to get vetted by lawyers, and then you have. Well,
2: to- this one certainly did. Yeah, no, this got vetted by lawyers. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, they did a lot of fact checking at the publisher, but I also hired my own fact checker um, who works at the Times, but she's a, she works up in the editorial department. She's not a professional stat, fast, fact checker. She's. Um, younger and and more of an sort of a, she's more of an administrative assistant type. but She's smart as hell. um, So I I had her sort of do everything that didn't involve a phone call, meaning uh, you know, titles, dates. I mean Google was, I mean basically she was my Google queen and um, and then if Google couldn't answer it, she would sort of get beyond that. Um, But no, I mean I'd have a lot of lunch or coffee meetings with people in which I'd sort of lay out what I was going to say about them and um, it was quite often just very stressful, and people were were very very nervous, and <laughs> um, and you know often very angry and defensive. Um, it almost all, always yielded better material and, and accuracy, so that was good. But no, I mean, I, I expected. I mean, there, there's a there's sort of a playbook by which people try to discredit Washington books, and usually it's quite effective. I mean, whether um, people because most Washington books don't do well, right? I mean, what book, mo, most Washington nonfiction books don't do well. I mean, except for maybe Bob Woodward and the occasional uh, memoir. It, it's not it, it's not a market that has done traditionally that well. So what people usually say is, oh, well, that book tanked. No one's reading it. Why should we even talk about it?" Or you know, maybe some. I mean, with Jody Cantor's book, I mean, the White House put out like a bullet point of like ten like kind of bogus errors or. Things that are in gray areas in the book, and then they put out a riddled with errors, um, I I think, press uh, press clipping or or or, or press release or something. So it it got very. I mean, it just gets very. I mean, he's like, okay, he's inaccurate, he's disgruntled, um, he's a turncoat. I mean, but I didn't get a lot of that. I mean, I guess Politico did a piece about how I. Sort of how I violated the unwritten rule of insider Washington by talking about other insiders critically and disrespectfully and how dare he report at parties and um so yeah, I, I guess I made some people uncomfortable. But it was um I, I was really, really ready for for a total shitstorm, which just hasn't happened. And I think I mean look, I mean the book's done really well and I think people everyone kinda loves a winner and so um, whether, whether that makes me a winner or not, it's, I mean, it's. A, it, it, has gained some traction outside of town and, um, you know, it's been on the bestseller list for a number of weeks now. And so it's people number one, right? Uh, yeah, it got that high. It, it did get, it got that, I think it got high is one in combined, um, print and ebook or hardcover and ebooks and, um, number two for just hardcover. And that was like six weeks ago. And I think. Probably around four or five this week, and I'll probably get another bump because uh, I did Bill Moyers the other night, and he has quite a following um, among. Well, guess, wait, wait, wait
1: till you get the podcast bump; it's going to be huge. I, you
2: know what? That's <laughs> going to be a serious bump. I, yeah, we're, we'll be right back at number one. Now, so, um, but no. So, uh, look, it's been good, and I think so though that, that so people just kind of throw their hands up and um, well, I don't the, know.
1: the truth, the truth quiets people down too. I mean. <laughs> When you talk about these fact-checking meetings, uh, mm-hmm. or where you were, you know, you were going through the process of vetting the book with lawyers and everything. Right, you're ha- that means that you're having physical sit-downs with major players that you describe in the book, going over things that yep. you report point by yeah, point.
2: Yeah, there were. I tried to do them in person, although I did a lot of them by phone too, just because that was more practical. But yeah, I mean, sometimes I would put big emails together, just sort of laying out factual things and let them have at it. Um, and it's you know, it's a process I, I, to follow. I mean, the magazine has some pretty rigorous fact-checking procedures. Um, but usually someone else does that. But no, I mean, it was, um, like, I knew I was going to say some things that people didn't like. I mean, I I have not gotten uh, physically abused or threatened or anything yet. But, I, like, I'm sure people are trashing me and, you know, whatever. I don't
1: care. Do you I mean, have party invites slowed down? Because, like, <laughs> uh, okay, and then look, I want to ask actually two questions. Mm-hmm. The first one yes. is, um in the writing of the book because people Mm -hmm. listening should know that like the book's really funny and and Mm -hmm. funny and in much the same way that I found uh, Gore Vidal's political writing is funny you know it's really acidic humor I respond well to that and yeah
2: um, yeah.
1: it's it's a difficult line to walk where you're trying to be uh, critical and incisive but you know without falling too far over the line into the realm of just being plain mean and it's it's not an easy it's like a tightrope walk like it's a
2: very tough walk yeah so no totally so you're how, did, right.
1: how did you get there? I mean, like, were you working... I mean, was the writing of the book something that, I mean, uh, I don't know, tonally you're just, like, struggling mm-hmm. with, or would it right. co- come out in big bursts? Did your editor really have to weigh in and rein you in, in moments where you <clears> might have <throat>
0: let yourself get to it Probably saved me for myself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I
2: don't think so. I mean, there are probably some occasions. I mean, I do think in a book like this, tone is everything. I mean, I, like, it, it is, it is, it is so important to strike a tone in which you are... You know critical, you are making your points, you are acidic but not unlikable, and that's a really tough balance and it's also a tough balance because you know you write a book like this piecemeal i mean i have I have a day job i have you know young kids i have a wife, and you know pretty full life so i I didn't have the luxury of um the uh writer who Wakes up at six in the morning. Writes every day from you know six to three o'clock or whatever. I mean whatever the sort of idyllic writer's Martha's Vineyard life is. (laughs) Um, And so, I um, I didn't have that. So I mean it's very very hard to kind of get a unity of of voice and and I mean because you know one day you'll be in a more of a preachy mood or one day you'll be in a punchy mood or one day you'll be in a um, an angry mood. I mean, it's like there are any number of moods you bring to your various writing sessions and it's sometimes unpredictable. And, um, you know, so I, I don't, I didn't, I mean, there there was sort of a, I did, I guess, have to work to sort of unify the tone a little bit, although I, I think it was more unconscious than anything else.
1: And did you have books that you were reading while you were writing this that you were looking to for tone or looking to for you know, I think a Hunter Thompson who who had a, a different approach <laughs> than huh, just right. most journalists. Period. But there's something right. about like his behavior, and I think his I think his writing is really strong at its best. And I think that you know it, it's hard not to look back at him and his instincts. Um, you know, he shows up to these things, and his I think his first instinct is I'm taking acid.
2: <laughs> yeah. No. No. Exactly. No. I, I really mean. I wish I had that sort of physical stamina, Hunter right. Thompson, I mean. Um, yeah, no, I mean, what I do, I mean, I, look, like, I did read a lot of, I mean, one of the dirty little secrets about reporting a book like this is there are so many memoirs in Washington that no one ever reads, and, I mean, for good reason. I mean, they're just like, um, I mean, who knew that Babe Buchanan had a memoir, right? Or who knew that Andrea Mitchell had a memoir? Uh, I actually went and I read them, and, and look, it's primary source material, and, and you can just, you learn a ton about these people. I mean, not that you want to learn that much, but... I mean you can definitely pick out some some key details and fun anecdotes um and I, I always do try to read um maybe a couple of pages before I actually sit down to write of of someone whose voice I like someone whose mood I want to get into um mean you know, michael lewis sometimes Christopher buckley um was definitely someone i would i would love to i always read a few pages of or i try to read a few pages of um you know, thank you for smoking is one of the great Washington books, I think. Um there's a writer named um Jeffrey Frank who wrote a book called Bad Publicity and the novel and the columnist and also a book called Trudy Hope Tale, which is like some of the best nonfic or the best fiction of uh about Washington, um sort of these these novels of manners. Uh that I I just loved his voice and that was always fun. So that I think always probably got me in the mood or the right sort of frame of mind.
1: And then what about – I want to talk about access, and I want to talk about this delicate terrain that you have mm-hmm. to navigate as a Washington journalist for a major national publication because you know, here you are uh, skewering uh, the right. culture and sticking a pin in a lot of it, and uh, at the same time, you're a part of it. And so right. you, you're going to these parties, and we talked a little bit earlier about kind of the chumminess that you sense between the members of the media and the people that they're – interviewing on the Sunday shows or whatever. And, um, it makes me like as a citizen, I find myself leery. I'm thinking like, you know what? I need a journalist who doesn't want to be friends with these people. I need a journalist who wants to cover these people and say what they see and give me the straight stuff. And not you know, and so how do you make sense of your role? You know, because you do need, you do need access, right? You have to have access to these people, but if you're sticking a pin in them, is it going to affect your ability to get access? I don't,
2: think so i mean I, I think access i mean i first to on, the honest answer is i haven't really tried since the book has come out I mean, i've just been so <laughs> focused on I mean, i've mean, i just been promoting the book and, and i haven't really tried to get back into the world but no i mean i'm getting i'm getting invited to parties like i was invited to the uh, grand opening for the relaunch of crossfire next week starting uh uh, Democratic strategist Stephanie Cutter, uh, Newt Gingrich, who she'll be arguing with every night, uh, oh, Van yeah. Jones, and S.C. Kamine. I mean, it's just like a great cast of usual suspects. And sure. um, I mean, how, what a perfect, um, you know, I mean, so much of what's happened this summer has just been a great um, affirmation of the premise of the book. And this is one of them. And of course, I'm invited. And Um, I know exactly what it's going to be like and who's going to be there and what food's going to be served and how everyone's going to be congratulating each other. And I know, you know, we know what the show's going to be like because it was on the air for many years. And then they canceled it, you know, I think, mercifully. And now we'll, you know, get to see the 2013 uh, version of it. And so, yeah, no, look, I mean, I I think anyone who just enjoys and gets off on the crushing sameness of, of, of the Washington glamour scene is is quite limited to begin with. And, and, and look, I probably did pull some punches because I'm friend really good friends with people and I didn't want to lose any real friends, but I don't think I did. So.
1: And then, and then what about like ethically, like, how do you, like the job of journalism, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. speaking, uh, you know, my listenership is, is, consists of a lot of writers and Mm -hmm. I think, you know, people who are trying to write fiction, but also people who are working in nonfiction and journalism. And I think we all know, um, you know, how difficult it is these days for journalists, a lot of papers are shuttering, there's been a lot of contraction in newsrooms and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's that, that you're working against. And then in terms of covering politics, um, you know, like ethically, like, do you Mm -hmm. have, is there like a a set of rules or, a you know, in terms of how to approach this, you know, while at the same time keeping your, uh, journalistic integrity?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, journalistic integrity is is obviously everything, and I mean, everyone enters into their own ground rules and their own agreements, and, and you just don't violate them. I and mean, I didn't. Um, I mean, there was like this kind of bogus, I mean, piece in Politico like, that I mentioned before that, that it basically implied that I burned people, which I just didn't. I mean, um, I mean, if someone's having a conversation with me, I can assume it's private unless it's public, and you know, when they, you know, when I'm working as a journalist, if we're like. Know, if we're on the phone, I mean, you know, they generally know it. So, I mean, look, I mean, ethics and journalism are shouldn't be that complicated. It's just sort of do what you say you're going to do, honor your agreements with sources and subjects and people you're interviewing, um, and and also just um, you know, obviously, think of your readers first and 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 serve you know the higher calling. But I don't, I mean, I don't pretend that like Congressman X or Senator Y or White House Chief of Staff. Z is going to be my friend at the end of the day. I mean, that's not – it's not practical, and it's not why I, I got into it. So,
0: Right.
1: And, and so, like, just so I'm, I can understand more clearly, like, if yeah. you're – you're, obviously, if you're at a press conference or you're at some right. sort of official event, you know, right. and you're sent there by the Times, then people, you know, they know what capacity you're there in, and they understand that everything's mm-hmm. on, on the record unless otherwise stated. But right. if you're at some sort of casual social event on a Sunday afternoon and you happen to be talking to – Chief of Staff X or Staff for Y, and they say something to you casually that could be newsworthy, what are you ethically bound to do with that?
2: Well, I mean, it sort of depends on, like, the casual setting, right? I mean, if it's like – if it's a kid's birthday party in the neighborhood, I mean, that's obviously a private and safe event, I think. But, I mean, when you have, like, a book party that's heavily promoted and which reporters are invited – to attend and, you know, presumably cover, I mean, that's all fair game. I mean, there were some people saying, you know, how dare he write about Tim Russert's funeral. I mean, it's a, it's a sacred event. It's like, how dare he actually take notes and what people are doing and so forth. And um, first of all, I didn't take that many notes when I was there. I actually debriefed people afterwards. So, Uh, but look, it's on live television. I mean, this this is a public spectacle. It's like public figures are there. I mean, I think it's fair game and, you know, Dozens of people wrote about the event. So, um, yeah, I mean, so that's, uh, no, but I mean, if I, I generally, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I can't, th- I mean, not a single person has come to me after the books come out and say, hey, that was a private conversation that you used or that you wrote about. Um, because, you know, I, I think obviously it's it's the, the onus is on, on the writer and the reporter to to set the rules as clearly as he can. Sure.
1: Yeah. And then, uh, I want to ask about a couple of key players in the book before mm-hmm. I let you go, because there are, there are some really like you, you know, each of these chapters in some ways functions as kind of a one-off, right. uh, and yeah. there Thank are, you. there are kind of like archetypes that uh, I think you address in the book you have. And forgive me if I'm forgetting her name. It's, is it Tammy Haddad? Tammy Haddad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you have Tammy Haddad, who's like the socialite public relations. Okay.
2: Uh, World service convener of the Washington A List.
1: Right. Okay. Um, so I want to talk yeah. about her because I feel like I've seen this person in I've seen an iteration of this person in Hollywood many oh, yeah. times. It's like it's like she's like a woman who's not. A, I mean, she'll go up to anybody and she yep. has like this gift for just like getting in the faces of powerful people and just being right. like, "You're going to do this," and you know, she's filming them with a camera. And I mean, it's it's right. um, it's kind of hilarious, but also like. <laughs> Good Lord, it's exhausting to think about.
2: It. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, look, she. There are people like her. I mean, she's sort of a professional star fucker and busybody. Um, you know, she's everywhere. She makes herself ubiquitous. Uh, she's also made herself a very, very successful business um, in which media companies hire her to to put parties together and do some video production stuff, and um, you know, maybe help them get into the White House and so forth. Um, uh, so, um, so. Um, but he, but, but so the, it, it's very, um, I mean, it's, it's very, I mean, but, but look, she's very much emblematic of the modern Washington, the,
1: um, uh, the, well, I'm, I'm thinking of like how much she's able to trade on, uh, like, the, like, how, like how much value there is in, in being connected. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, she makes a, a ton of money. Uh, just by virtue of the fact that she has this Rolodex, she can throw these parties. People will come to these parties. She's—I mean—that's mm-hmm. kind of—and I mean, that's the achievement, you know. Like uh, she's got powerful people show. Like when she throws a party, people show up, man. You know? like, right, exactly. She's built right. that brand, and somehow people respond to it. And then you have, um, you know, Bob Barnett, who's right. a, a similarly singular figure, because yeah, you know, I, I, had, so. I had read about him. Uh, Repeatedly in the news, he's usually not the central part of the story, but he's always like mentioned. And you're like, who the hell is this guy? Right. And he's essentially like the lawyer and deal maker. And I think my audience will appreciate this because he does a lot of these major book deals for big figures Mm -hmm. uh, out of Washington. But like, you know, uh, okay, here's I I have a personal anecdote to relate. Mm -hmm. When I was uh, early in my writing career, I went to New York to uh, meet with some like prospective literary agents, Mm -hmm. and I happened to have a meeting in the office of Barack Obama's first literary agent and this was Mm -hmm. i think this was like during his senate campaign in 2004 was it
2: right yeah that's a big that's a big that's a sort of an untold story right i think i I haven't heard there's a lot of speculation or there's a lot of discussion about what went down there
1: well you know he had uh this literary agent in new york at a a boutique Mm -hmm. agency who i think sold Mm -hmm. dreams from my father Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as soon as he became Barack Obama in bold letters, um, mm-hmm. suddenly Bob Barnett was his agent. And I, I remember reading about that, and I was like, "He made the shift." He, you know, Bob Barnett mm-hmm. did Hillary Clinton's book, Bill Clinton's book. Like, yep. this, this guy's just the kingmaker. If you can get him to rep you, he's going to be able to get you a pretty good deal. It seems like.
2: Yeah. Well. Yes and no. I mean, there was, <clears throat> um, opinions, you know, vary wildly on him. And and look, I mean, I think he's like the consummate operator. Um, and I I assume he doesn't like the way he's portrayed in the book. And well, no, look, but he's like you know, like Tammy, someone who's made the town work for, for him. And I mean, you know, has definitely cashed in on on the boom in, in the industries that now exist and afford people to cash in, whether it's the president of the United States or um, or a Hill staffer who wants to become a lobbyist.
1: Yeah, it's just it's just interesting how these people have become the one, you know, you would think, you would think that the market would be big enough to accommodate more, but it's really like they've, they've found a way to like centralize power and become like the person, you know,
2: exactly. No, it's so true. Totally true. It's the brand, the person, whatever you want to call it.
1: And then, um, the last figure from the book that I, I found really compelling and who I think, you know, he's the kind of person who might escape, uh, the public view. A lot of the time is Kurt Bardella, who Mm -hmm. is a, a staffer.
2: Right, and you know, the, I think a lot of people hope that he re- returns to escaping public view. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say, you know, like we think of we think of Washington, and we obviously think of public Washington first, and the people that we see on our television screens and on the front pages mm-hmm. of our newspapers. But there's a you know, there's this whole huge bureaucracy, and all these people working, and um, you know, every congressional office is filled with these staffers who tend to be uh, ambitious young people. Uh, you know, and Kurt Bardella, I think, uh, is really emblematic of maybe the extreme version of that. Um,
2: um, yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I mean, staffers in Washington. I mean, one of the great, um, you know, one of the most familiar cliches about staffer life is you're supposed to be seen but not heard. I mean, not supposed to be written about. And I think, first of all, that that's kind of a myth because it's. I we're in this sort of age of the celebrity operative in which. West Wing has made the Josh Lyman Lyman's of the world as as compelling as the President Bartlett's of the world and, and Kurt, you know, I, what I like what I liked about him is he just loved to loved to tell his story and he was extremely um, compelled by his own narrative and wanted people to um, read about him and wanted to know what his days were like and um he got a little too unshy and was sharing a lot of emails that he was receiving from members of Congress and other reporters with me and eventually wound up getting fired. So we had, I was in the middle of this story, I guess, (laughs) uh, that Politico was all excited about in 2011. And, and that was very, um, uh, it was very, it it was very weird, you know, for a board to be in the middle of the story, but, but I mean, that sort of beginning to end narrative, um, comprises chapter, I think chapter eight.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and, You know, there's something that strikes me about his story that seems really generational. Like this, this, this this, uh, willingness to share so much. uh, So this, this ability to see and then communicate one's own personal narrative. Like I feel like, not to sound like an old fogey or anything, but I feel like the millennials, like they're a lot more open. They they grew up in a world of social media or maybe you know the internet age in a way that maybe I didn't or you didn't. Right. it's just like I don't know. I think they it's, they seem more comfortable with that, totally. and I think that might be a, a part of his story. You know,
2: I know I think so. Look, I mean, I think technology has um, enabled the kind of narcissism that that did not. Well, that it probably always existed, but that did not have the easy outlet that it might have had in an earlier time. And, and politics has always been um, this great festival of. Narcissism and voyeurism, and um, he he managed to get himself right in the middle of that. <laughs>
1: so. Well, okay. Well, before I let you go, I, I you know one of the questions that I. Uh, I want to ask you about the success of the book. Is the amount of media you've been doing? Because I'm catching you. <laughs> I'm catching you in the midst of an you know for what any writer would I think dream about at least yeah, no, to some extent. You've been getting interviewed by everyone. Bill Moyers. You were on the Daily Show. Yeah. Every no, you, you've gotten, you've gotten to hit every major media outlet. A lot of people want to talk to you about this book. Right. Um, talk about that process for you because I know it's exciting and you're thrilled with the success of the book. Obviously, yeah. but. You right. must, you must be so exhausted mm-hmm. talking about this.
2: Thing. <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I like when the questions are new, and, and these have been new, so I appreciate that. Um, now, look, I, I I do love talking about this stuff, and, and actually, for a reporter, it's it's always a bit odd to be on the other side of the questions, but it's also, look, I mean, I've been alone with these with with these with this process for a long time, and it's nice to sort of have there's also been like, there was some weird speculation about the book and what kind of tell all it would be and so forth. And it's actually nice to be able to talk about something that exists and that people can read and so forth. So, um, yeah, I mean, you realize that when you are promoting a book, um, I would say the vast majority of interviewers haven't read it. Um, which is always, you know, so that you can just tell cause they're going by their, their, the, you know, the t- 10, you know, possible talking points that the publisher provides. Um, <laughs> And, um, yeah, I mean, there's a broad range, but you, you just, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been great. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, you know, at times it gets a little... Um, a little tiring, but no, I mean, I'm, it's, I'm, I know I'm going to miss it when it's over. So I'm trying to, trying to enjoy it, when it as well as lasts.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's, a, you, I mean, you kind of can't, you can't complain too much with this kind of success. Oh, but yeah, I'm not <laughs> complaining at all. No. It's um, great. and how is it, has the book and its success changed anything with respect to your approach to your career? Like, you know, do you find mm-hmm. that having seen the response to this book, has it heartened you to maybe take, uh, you know, take on this tone in your reporting, maybe a little bit more than you did previously. Do you have yeah. other books in mind? Like, has it helped? Has it made you reconfigure your thoughts about your career?
2: Uh, maybe a little bit. I mean, I don't. I, mean, I don't have any plans to, to make any changes, but I, I do think that um, you know, look, when you're writing a book, I mean, one of the, the best and worst things about it is it's, it's your thing, right? And um, I mean, you're sort of out operating outside the institution. I mean, in my case, the New York Times which is a very powerful news organization, but also has a very powerful institutional voice and a very, very powerful institutional um, hierarchy. And, and, you know, it is sort of liberating to be your own boss and and to sort of drive your own narrative. But I I do, um, you know, I've always had a a lot. I've actually been given a fair amount of leeway even before the book, both here and at The Post, about, you know, writing with a fair amount of voice. And magazine writers, uh, I think, have a head start um, in the sense that, that they're encouraged to have a point of view and stuff. But no, I mean, it's definitely seductive. And, and again, I haven't really made the transition back into uh magazine world. So I guess we'll see.
1: And then what about a, a movie like Game Change? Like, is there anything, that you, <laughs> has anyone approached you about wanting to do something
2: with this? Yeah. I mean, I my agent has people working on, you know, having conversations in Hollywood with, with various TV folks. And uh, I haven't really been focused on it, but I, I assume I'll, I'll have to come out there at some point in the near future and take some meetings as they say so,
1: <laughs> go on the uh, go on the water bottle tour
2: exactly exactly
1: well uh, I thank you so much for spending time talking with me It's been really fun and congratulations yeah. on all the success with the book and uh, I wish you luck uh, yeah. as you, as you finish up your your big uh you know tour and and then head back into the into
2: the uh, jungle, as it were. Exactly, that's all the jungle, man. Uh, well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. This was fun. All right, you guys, there you go. That is
1: Mark Leibovich. Go get his book. It's called This Town, and it's available now from Blue Rider Press in hardcover ebook and audiobook versions. You can find Mark on Twitter, where his handle is at Mark Leibovich. He's also on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And hey, don't forget to to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes are automatically uploaded to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that. If you haven't done that already, the app itself is free. Okay, so, uh, Washington. Cry. it's so depressing. It's such a toxic place. So, like, systemically fucked. And I say that uh, as a resident of Los Angeles, sitting beneath a cloud of brown smog and uh, the psychic weight of millions of bleeding egos. And then, uh, on another front, voicemail, remember people, tell me a story, complain, Ask a question. Make it usable. I want to use them. That's the point. But uh, they have to be engaging for the audience. So uh, get creative with it. Be emotional. Be candid. And remember, you can uh, leave messages anonymously. So uh, hopefully something will coalesce. I like the idea of including you guys on the show. Take some of the pressure off of me. Uh, Please remember that Nathaniel Hawthorne never learned which side won the Civil War... And that Henry David Thoreau once said of Walt Whitman, quote, he is not only eager to talk about himself, but reluctant to have the conversation stray from the subject. That's it for now. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Mark Leibovitch. I'll be back in a few days with uh, another episode, another conversation with another human being of bookish tendencies. Happy Labor Day. Before I forget, it's Labor Day tomorrow. And uh, here I am working. I'm a podcaster. (laughs)